Okay, welcome. And um, all right, so we are proceeding through the story of Abraham. And um, we're up to the, we began the story where Avram goes down to Mitzrayim, uh, goes down to Egypt. And prior to getting there, he says to Sarah, who's called Sarai at this point, that we're going to a dangerous place. The Egyptians see you and they think we're married, they'll kill me, keep you alive. Say therefore, you are my sister. It's on your screen. Uh, scroll down a little bit. And um, so we have the story of Abraham going down to Egypt saying that his wife is his sister. Now in the book of Breshit, of course, we all know that we have three such stories. Three very similar stories. We have chapter 12. We have chapter 20 that we'll be looking at shortly. That's it. when Abraham goes to the land of the Philistines, to Grar. And we have chapter 26, which is the story of Yitzchak going to also in the land of the Philistines. And he says that his wife Rivka is his sister. So we have three really quite similar stories, three sister stories. And the point of the three sister stories, which are quite parallel to each other, all kinds of similarities. The point of including these three stories, of course, is to, uh, is to enable the reader to look at them carefully, each one in the context of the others. And the parallels are important, the commonalities are important, but equally, if not more important, are the distinctions between these three stories. This is an obvious invitation to look at three stories together. And of course, this is not limited to these three stories as a general proposition, a general approach. This is what we often do. But in this case, it's obvious that the inclusion of three parallel stories is here primarily to enable us to sharpen our understanding of each story. So this morning, I'd like to look at chapters 12 and 20, the two Avram stories. 12 is our chapter, and 20, of course, is with Avram goes to the land of the Philistines. And we'll compare and contrast those two stories in order to get a sense, among other things, of the how the Avram story is moving. Now, before we get to chapters 12 and 20, I wanted to point out that, and I started this last week, that different commentaries and commentators have different views about what the Chumash is saying about Avram's behavior in chapter 12. Some try to defend it, some condemn it. And the truth of the matter is like most stories in Sefer Breshit, maybe all of them, they're all nuanced. It's not black and white, but fundamentally the Ramban's point is fundamentally he made a mistake, or one might say two mistakes in going there. A, he had no permission to go. He was told to go to the land that I will show you and God appears to Abraham in verse number seven, and that's where he should stay. He wasn't given permission to leave, and on top of that, says the Ramban, he endangered his wife. So these, says the Ramban, famously that Abraham sinned in two different ways. Others are trying to, if not fully justify what he does, to mitigate responsibility, to explain it. His intention was not to be there permanently, his logur, as a temporary resident till the famine subsides. 
His intention was not that his wife be taken. The Ron suggested, and I mentioned this last week, that he would be a negotiator. As a brother, he negotiates for his sister's hand in marriage. He would put them all off, says the Ron. Maybe he'd be giving gifts to encourage him to. Uh, Payola is not, an, is not a uh, new phenomenon. And, uh, and then he would hightail it out of town, the two of them, before Sarah was grabbed by anybody in particular. So he would benefit from the negotiations and he would take the Midnight Express out of, out of Egypt. That's the Ron's explanation. One may question whether this uh, presents Abraham in, in the most noble light, but the Ron's point is that it was never his intention to benefit by giving her in marriage to somebody else. That's the Ron, and one can, ex one can embrace what the Ron says and still say that going there was a bad mistake, which is what I believe. But I wanted to make a different point about how one can arrive at a decision about how to evaluate Avram's behavior. And this touches upon something that I've mentioned many times in the past about how one reads the Avram story in general. And the important point to remember is that the Abraham narrative is not uh, a standalone piece, nor did the Torah begin with chapter 12. The Torah begins with chapter one. The Torah begins with creation. There are stories that precede the Abraham narrative. And I'll mention two of them, which are relevant to chapter 12. The first one is the story of the Garden of Eden and the taking of the forbidden fruit. So that story, which is chapters two and three, and in chapter three, the woman is approached by the snake who says to the woman in chapter three, I heard you can't eat any of the fruit in the garden. And the woman says in chapter three, that's not true. We can, we can eat the fruit of all the trees in the garden except for this one tree. We're told not to eat it lest we die. And the snake says that you're not going to die. Right? God has a different motive here. God doesn't want you to be like God. And the woman uh, suddenly sees the tree differently. It becomes desirous. Pleasant and desirous. She saw there was tov it was good to eat. And the Torah says in chapter 3, she took it. She took it and, um, and she uh, ate it. She saw it and she took it. She saw it was good. That's chapter three. That's the primal sin. That's what gets us banished from the Garden of Eden. It's true she was never commanded not to eat it personally, but she knows it's a command. So that's the first story. That's in chapter three. She sees and she takes and she takes what the Torah describes as good in her eyes, tovu machal. That's how she sees it. Then you get to chapter six. Chapter six, it says that when the human being began to flourish on the earth, there were daughters born to them. Banot yuldulahem, chapter six. And the next verse is, vayiru Elohim et not adam ki the literally sons of God, Bnei Elohim, whatever that means, saw, Vayiru, that they were good, referring to these 
daughters, the young women. And they took women, whomever they chose. So it's non-consensual, taking by force. The Torah contrasts the B'nai Elohim with Benot Adam, sons of God with the sons of the human. They see, they see their good, and they take. So those two stories, chapter three and chapter six, are parallel stories. Not only are they parallel stories, but the effect of what they do is also parallel. Because in the first instance, we are told that because the human has taken of the forbidden fruit, the human becomes mortal. As, as the woman said, at the time that you eat it, you will die. Doesn't mean necessarily to die at that moment, but you will be mortal. So there's an awareness of mortality, there's mortality. And in the second case, in chapter six, shortly after the Bnei Elohim story, the Torah says in chapter six, that the days of the human will be limited to 120 years. So those two effects are also parallel. But the language of seeing and taking, and in both of those cases, what you take is what is good, or at least what appears to be good. In each case, it says they saw it was good. So there's a subjective element, but those are parallel stories. And now we come to chapter 12. In chapter 12, there's a famine, a very severe famine, and Avram in chapter 12 says, and we have it in front of us in verse number 12, when the Egyptians see you and say, this is his wife, they will kill me, keep you alive. Say therefore, please, you are my sister. That it be good for me on account of you. I remain alive thanks to you. So he says, Avram says, say this. He says, whether that's two things or one thing is a good question. Does it mean it will be good in that I live? Or does it mean it will be good and in addition I'll live? That's a question. And now the Torah continues and says that when they came down to Mitzrayim, the Egyptians the Egyptians saw in verse 15 Pharaoh's officers saw and they praised it to Pharaoh and she was taken so here we have the seeing and the taking the seeing and the taking. He prays it to Pharaoh, and the effect in verse number 16, and because of her, it went well. It was tov for, for, for Avram. Tov in the sense that he got many possessions, sheep, oxen, asses, male and female slaves, she asses, and camels. So we notice something very interesting about these verses. And that is that before in chapter three and six, we had someone who sees and takes and what 
she or they see in verse in chapter six is defined by the Torah as Tov. Now over here, we have the Egyptians seeing and Sarah take, being taken. But the word Tov has not been abandoned by the Torah. The word Tov appears both in the verse that precedes the seeing and taking and the verse that follows the seeing and taking. In the preceding verse, and the Torah says, in fact, and for Avram, it, it was good, it went well, in that he received many, many, many gifts. So now the question is what to make of this interesting phenomenon, that we have the three key words, see, take, and good, in three stories, but in the first two stories, it's good for the one who sees and takes. But in the third story, which is our story, the Torah has split the two. The seeing and the taking, that's the Egyptians. But the good accrues to somebody else, namely to Avram. What do we make of that? Well, I'll tell you what I make of it. What I make of it is that the Torah has set Avram up as an accomplice to the crime. He may be an unwitting accomplice to the crime. I'm not suggesting he intends this to happen. I'm sure he doesn't. On the other hand, if we follow the Ramban's thinking, he shouldn't be there in the first place. So will we know he, will we know he, he in fact is an accomplice to the crime. That's the significance of the toll. The toll accrues to him. The seeing and taking is them. So effectively, he's a partner. If you read it this way, clearly, there is a <coughs> condemnation in one form or another of what Avram does. And the important point here, I think, is not so much does the Torah condemn it or not? Does the Torah censure it? I believe it does. It's always nuanced. Yes, there is a famine and a heavy family doesn't intend it to happen and all that's true. That's what makes these stories interesting. But in fact, that is what happens. And the question among others, and I think the primary question is, what is the effect of the story? In the larger Avram story, in the larger Avram narrative, what effect does this have? Because this is what does happen. It is true, and we'll see this shortly, that Sarah is freed from her captivity. That's true. God intervenes on her behalf, or maybe one might say on their behalf, but these things that happened don't simply evaporate, they don't disappear. They have an effect in this particular case, a profound effect and influence on the entire Avram narrative, as we will see. That's how our story begins. So I wanted to mention that before we get to a comparison of chapters 12 and 20, which will be our focus, I wanted to simply point out, and we've seen this already in the past, the Avram story is embedded in the larger story of Breshit, and in particular, in the creation narratives. We'll come back to this many times. It's a very important point that Avram, on one hand, is Avram, great father. He's the beginning. But on the other hand, one might, one might even say he's the, he's, he's the last step, the final step, in the creation narrative. He's part of the creation narrative, and we'll see this in the future.
So this is where we left off uh, last time. So let's just finish up the story here, and then we'll begin to look at chapter 20. We'll jump ahead to chapter 20. So let's see. So in the next verse, which is verse number 17, so Sarah is taken. Now the Torah says in verse 17, Vayinaga Hashem et paro, nigaim gedorim viet beito, avdavar sarai eshet avram. But God, Vayinaga, from the word nega, to a nega we typically translate as a plague, God afflicted paro, and they translate with mighty plagues, nigaim gedorim, not just paro, but his entire house, on account of Sarai, the wife of Avram. The Torah emphasizes the wife of Avram. And of course, and the Ramban makes this point as well, Ramban's commentary on the Torah is one of the great gifts that the Jewish people have been given. It's a, one of the truly great works. But he points out, what it probably is obvious to most of us, that the story of Avram going down to Egypt prefigures the story of the Exodus. In the story of the Exodus, the Jews went down to Mitzrayim because of a famine. That's why Jacob sent his sons down to Egypt. And we get stuck there in Egypt for many years. And we're afflicted by Paro and the Egyptians. And God intervened on behalf of the Israelites and sends plagues. The tenth one, O nega achad of Paro, the word nega appears prior to the 10th plague. So we have a parallel story. Avram going down to Egypt parallels, one might say foreshadows, the story of the Exodus. And now after the plague, when God intervenes, next verse, And Paro says to Avram, what have you done? What did you do to me? By the way, is exactly the language, or almost exactly the language, what God said to the woman after the episode in, in the Garden of Eden. Mazota sit, what have you done? And that's a phrase that appears and reappears throughout Genesis. It's a question, but it's not just a question, it's a critique. What have you done? What is this? Why didn't you tell me she's your wife? He continues. Why do you say she's my sister? I took her as a wife. Now. And now, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. Now, by the way, is not an innocent expression. There are no innocent expressions, of course. That's a language that we find in Breshit when it comes to marriage. We'll perhaps encounter this later. So is hardly an innocent expression. The Torah just has Paro saying to Avram, is wife, husband-wife language. You lied to me, why did you do this? Now take your wife, she's your wife, and leave and Avram essentially is deported together with Sarah. They're deported from the land of Egypt. 
That's another parallel to the story of the Exodus when the Jewish people are thrown out of Egypt. And it says, Vayisabala para Anashim, Paro put men in charge of him, they sent him with his wife, Fiatkolashilo and all his possessions. So it's interesting that he actually keeps the possessions, which is another parallel to the Exodus story. We remember, of course, that before the Jews leave Egypt, they are given all kinds of gifts by the Egyptians. And they leave with, one might say, Ruchush which is the description in chapter 15 of our book here of Breshit. So the parallels, and there are more parallels, but the parallels to the story of the Exodus, that's very clear. So Paro condemns Avram. Avram doesn't say a word. He doesn't respond. Mazoto Sita, well, what did you do here? You lied to me. You got me in trouble. You got me plagued. Me and my house, I get out. That's the story of chapter 12. Again, the effect of all this on Avram and Sarah, the relationship and all that, that's the central theme of the Avram story. There are many themes. That's one of the central themes of the Avram story. Okay. Now, before we jump to chapter 20, uh, does anybody have any comments or questions what we've done so far? Yes. I'm just saying that it's the, in the beginning of the Avran story, we hear already, which, yes. I mean, when, when Terach moves, uh, nothing like this is said about him. Um, and here also, I mean, the, the putting the details, number one, and number two, the Rechush before the Nefesh. And when we yes, I mentioned that last down. week. Yes, I did mention that last week. Yes, but now it's look? the same. You see, now it's the same. Yes, so it's not just uh, here, by the way. Yeah. We'll see throughout the first several chapters, and we can get back next week to continuation. Um, that is a central theme. The way I would frame it for now is very simply. Avram is 75 years old. He's told, I'm going to make you a great nation. He has to build a nation. Now to build a nation, he needs two things. He needs some kind of successor, he's 75, so he's not a youngster. He, his wife doesn't have any children. She's not gonna pr presumably provide a successor. He also needs Rechush Kodol. You need the Rechush in order to build something. And so on one hand, what has happened here, again, I'm not suggesting that's his motive, but the end of the day, if you look at it from a certain perspective, Sarai, his wife, is not providing what he needs to build the empire, but maybe Paro can. And we see, by the way, if we assume that that it go well for me and that I live are not the same thing. The Ron suggested it the same. It will go well in that I live. Rashi said otherwise. It'll go well to give me gifts. I'll also live. And what's curious is that he mentions the going well before he mentions living. The example I give, I've given in the past is, let's say for example, I, I, after the class, I do me a favor. I know you have a car. Will you drive me home today? Because I usually take the train. There's someone on the train 
that's been looking at me in a strange way. I'm very frightened. So please drive me home. I'm worried about taking the train. And also, I'll save the two and a half dollar fare. So the question is, why do I mention the fare? It's life and death. So you have to ask the question here. What does it mean? They'll give me gifts and I'll also live. And he mentions the gifts first. It's not drive me home and I'll also save the fare. I want to save the fare. And by the way, I'll also live. So there's something here, the way the Chumash tells its story, the nuances. That's the beauty of it and the power of it. It's all nuanced. And that's, I think, very important in learning anything, especially learning uh, Chumash. Rabbi Silver, could yes. I add? Also, uh, or just one quick point, and then a question. That quick point is that the fact that it says "vayitab" the same language, both before and after, suggests that that they are the same, uh, rather yes, than it is. yes, it certainly does. Correct. The thing that that bothers well that I find a little odd is, unlike the Exodus, I mean, there are some slight things that are good about the Egyptians, and even in the Exodus story, but here, okay, they took they took her, but after that, I mean, Paro comes across as you know a very straightforward guy. Oh. Uh, you didn't tell me, and he doesn't, you know, wait for an answer. He kicks him out of the country. Right. So I will, I will deal with that shortly. But I did want to get back to this other point you made, I and mean, the same point, which is an important point, and that is, well, I will deal with what you're saying more in depth, hopefully in a few minutes. That's very important. But let's remember one thing, and it takes me back to chapter six, the Bnei Elohim taking Pinotah Adam, and that is. That in my view, the Torah condemns this. This is not consensual. They're not asking the daughters of the human whether they're interested. They're taking them. They take by force. And the taking by force is problematic. It's problematic here. It's problematic in general, actually. To act in a way that's non-consensual from the Torah's standpoint is problematic. So yes, what you're saying is is correct, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 20, that at least with Paro, okay, he took her, he thought that she was not married, he didn't ask her, he takes her, and uh, so it's not explicitly mentioned that, so let's see, what, what the Ron said is that Avram's intention was to store people off, to have them negotiate, give me, they'll give him gifts, they'll try to win his favor, and he's going to store them off, and then when the famine subsides, they'll leave. Says the Ron, that's true with, with, with anybody. You can store them, but you can't store off Paro. When it comes to Paro, if he wants to take you, he's going to take you, and there's nothing you can do about it. So that's his reading of the story. But yes, the very taking itself is problematic. The second point you made is important. I'll get to that hopefully right away. Let's take a look now at the parallel story in chapter 20. There are two parallels, there's 20 and 26. But for this morning, we'll take a look at chapter 20. And chapter 20 is a very interesting chapter. So let's take a look at chapter 20. Chapter 20 comes right after chapter 19, of course. Chapter 19 is the story of Sodom, the destruction of Sodom. And chapter 20 begins this way, by Yisam Isham Abraham, Arzah HaNeged, by Yeshev ben Kadeshu ben Shur, by Yogar Bigrar. Abraham journeyed from there to the region of the Negev. He settled between Kadesh and Shur. He was sojourning in Gerar. By Yagar Bikrar, 
Literally, he sojourned in Gerar. Gerar is the land of the Philistines. There's a play on Vayagar and Gerar. He sojourned in a place of sojourning. What we don't know is why he goes to Gerar. Why did he go there? We have absolutely no idea. We know he travels to the land of the south. We know that in chapter 12, he also travels in a southerly direction. Haloch v'nosoah ha and there he ended up in Mitzrayim. He's not gonna end up in Egypt this time, but for some reason, unbeknownst to the reader, Rashi speculates, but it's pure speculation. The Torah doesn't tell us why he is in Quran. That's an important point. Because right away, there's a difference between chapter 12 and 20. In chapter 12, we know why he's in Egypt. Whether you think he did the right thing or the wrong thing, he has a reason. The reason is very simply, there's a famine and a heavy famine too, a heavy famine. And now in chapter 20, he's traveling again. He's always traveling. He's in Gerar. Now we come to verse number two. Avraham el Avraham said, and now we have a strange word in verse number two, it says El Sarah Ishto. El literally, El usually means two. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Avimelech, the king of Gerar, took Sarah. Here she's called Sarah because in chapter 17, her name was changed from Sarai to Sarah. Rashi noted here in verse number two that there are places in the Bible where the word El means concerning. The word El means Al with an I in. And he cites a couple of examples actually from the book of Shmuel. And that's certainly correct, obviously correct. However, I would discriminate between the Shmuel book and the Chumash over here for the following reason. In the book of Shmuel, and the first few chapters, the word El means concerning, and it means it many, many, many times. In fact, the word El essentially, for whatever reason, substitutes for the word Al. El Hanar Hazehit Palalti, but it's throughout the whole chapter and beyond. So for whatever reason, the author of Shmuel has chosen to say concerning Aleph Lamed. But the problem is that over here in the Chumash, in Breshit, we are hard pressed to find another example of where El means Al. And therefore, my impulse is to say that the Chumash here has chosen the word El for a very particular reason. It doesn't just mean concerning, it's not it's so innocent. He said to his wife, Sarah, Achotihi, what it presumably means is, he said to his wife, Sarah, say you are my sister. Say she is my sister. That is to say, say something which accords with what I'm going to say. And anybody ask me, achotihi. So he's instructing her. And if it's, if it's an instruction over here, then it's not exactly the same as chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, he said, imri na achotiyat, the little word na, please say you are my sister. Over here, it doesn't sound like 
it's a request so much, more of a more of a a reminder. And furthermore, what is puzzling to the reader, I presume, puzzling to me, is given what happened in chapter 12, that the last time he said this, she was grabbed by the king of Egypt, and without God's intervention, she would still be there in the harem of the king of Egypt. Why in the world would you have a repeat performance of what took place? But in point of fact, the question is much deeper than that. And what makes this chapter truly problematic is the following. That in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, 11, we were told that Sarah has no children. Sarai, she's called. But in chapter 17, which we skipped over, get there someday, I hope. In 17, Avram was told his name is Abraham, Abraham. He should call Sarai his wife, Sarah. That he will be the father of many nations. And that Sarah will be the mother of many nations. And not just that, she'll be the mother of his covenantal child. That's explicit at the end of chapter 17. But, however, in truth, Sarah will bear you with a child. And I will establish my covenant through that child. Avram laughed when he heard it. Would that Yishmael live before you? God says, Yishmael, okay. I heard you about Yishmael. I'll bless him too. But the covenant is with Isaac. The covenant of chapter 15 is with Isaac. So let me ask you a simple question, which does not need a response. Why in the world, given the fact that this woman, you've been told explicitly that this woman will bear the covenantal child, why would you risk anything? Why would you risk her being taken by somebody else? It happened once before. It is astonishing, actually, puzzling, and I would say highly disturbing that Avram would risk such a thing. But this is the reality. So we don't know why he's there. He seems to just repeat what he did earlier without it appears even asking permission. And the effect of what he does is precisely parallel to what happened in chapter 12. The king, that's what kings do. The king is autocratic. The king takes whatever he wants. And Sarah finds herself now in a similar position. Now we'll see what God will do when we read a few more verses that will reflect upon the differences between chapters 12 and 20. But let's, let's continue now with chapter 20. Now God gets involved once again. God appeared to Avimelech in a dream, dream of night. So God does speak to Avimelech. God did not speak to Pharaoh. But God does speak to Avimelech. You will die on account of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. So God at once intervenes, not with plagues. We don't know anything yet about plagues. We'll see later, but not at this point with plagues. But God comes to Avimelech. Now Avimelech had not approached her. From this verse, we can infer, counter to many Midrashim, that Paro did approach her. 
That's what it sounds like. Vayomar, and Abimelech said, Adonai, O Lord, Hagoigam Tzadik Tarog, will you slay even a righteous, even a righteous nation? And what does that mean, will you slay even a righteous nation? Because the previous chapter, chapter 20 follows chapter 19. Chapter 19 is the story of Sodom. So there God destroys Sodom. Sodom and Amorah, the great destruction. That's chapter 19. Avimelech turns to God and says, what kind of God are you? I understand you slay the wicked, but would you slay even a guy that's tzaddik? And remember that when Abraham prays to God in chapter 19, he talks about tzaddikim. Abraham prayed for Sodom. Would you slay even a tzaddik together with the wicked? The innocent. Tzaddik is the innocent. Says Avimelech, what kind of God are you? You will slay even a righteous nation, an innocent nation? He's referring, of course, to himself. Uh, he calls himself a tzaddik. Fine. And now he continues. For he said, Avimelech says to God, he said, she's my sister, Achotihi. That's the language of the beginning of the chapter. And Abraham said to Sarah, Achotihi. That's what he must have said. And she, she also said, he's my brother. So in other words, what are you blaming me for? He said, sister. She said, brother. I got a problem with him and a problem with her. As far as myself, I did this with a pure heart and clean hands. So what do you want from me? In other words, if we summarize what Abimelech is saying, he, in describing himself, he has three words, Tzadik, Tomlev, and Niki Kapayim. We are hard pressed in the Bible to find anybody who has all three attributes. But here he talks about himself. As far as me, I'm an innocent, pure hands, innocent person, clean heart. On the other hand, I got a problem with him because he said she's my sister. I got a problem with her because she said he's my brother. And frankly, God, I hate to say it, I got a problem with you too. What kind of God are you anyway? You would kill Tzadikim. Now, Abraham had a similar argument in chapter 19. The only difference is he wasn't talking about himself. He's praying for somebody else. Avimelech talks about himself. So we have to put Avimelech on the side for a moment. This will take us back to Micah's point shortly and the nature of Avimelech. So now we have God's response. Vayomre lova Elohim gamanochi yodati ki betam rivavcha asitazot voechsoch gamanochi yodcha mechatovi and God said, again, in a dream, God does talk to Avimelech, but in a dream, I also know that you have an in, that you, you did this with, in, with an innocent heart. That is to say, you were unaware of the fact that she was married. Therefore, I spare you from sinning. Therefore, I'm not going to allow you to, when Goa can mean to touch her, or it can also mean to harm. It's not just touching, 
but 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 using something in the wrong way. I'll come back to that word lindoa, because right away you see something else very interesting. That in the case of Abraham's story, in chapter twelve, God intervenes with nigaim Hashem nigaim gedolim, and now in chapter twenty, God will prevent Abimelech lindoa. We are reminded of the story of the Garden of Eden once again, what the woman said to the snake. God's, we can eat all the fruit, not the fruit of that tree. Don't eat it and don't, and don't valtigabo. Often translated, don't touch it. it, means don't use it in the wrong way. So all three stories have the word nun ayin. that word appears in all three stories. In fact, it appears in the story, in the third sister story as well. We'll reflect on that at a different time. But meanwhile, we'll keep the parallels. So God says to him, I know what an instant you are. And now in the next verse, return the man's wife, he's a prophet. He'll pray for you when you live. And if you don't return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all that you possess. Now, two reflections on this verse. First of all, return the man's wife, he's a prophet and he will pray. First time we encounter the word prophet in the Bible, it's someone who prays, prays for somebody else. That's number one. But number two, there is a pointed response to Abimelech. Because what Abimelech had said earlier was, what kind of God are you? Would you slay even a righteous nation? That's what Abraham said in the previous chapter with Sodom. And Abraham prayed for Sodom. But as we know, the prayers of Abraham for Sodom were not answered in the way Abraham wanted because Sodom was destroyed. The only person Abraham manages to save is his nephew Lot. Everybody else dies in Sodom. So what God seems to be saying to Abimelech, as I understand it is, yes, I know, I know what kind of tzaddik you are. You call yourself a tzaddik. Let me tell you what kind of tzaddik you are. You're a tzaddik that if Abraham prays for you, you will live. You're better than Saddam. Agreed. But how much better is the question? And here there's a very important point. Avimelech is a very clever character who misled a lot of people, including, in my view, the Ramban. Avimelech is no tzaddik. Because if Avimelech were a tzaddik, that's not the way God speaks to tzaddikim. God does not say to the tzaddik, return the woman, and if you don't do it, I'm gonna kill you. That's not the way God speaks to tzaddik. So that's point number one. He's no tzaddik, because he took without permission. You know tzaddik. But there is something else deeper here in God's response and very important. And that is, there's a little word here that is significant in this chapter, very significant in the chapter. If we don't get to it today, we'll get to it next week. The little word is the little tiny two-letter word, gam. Notice the word gam. When Abimelech speaks to God, Hagoi gam tzaddik, would you call, would you kill also the tzaddik? Referring to himself, the righteous nation. Hello, look, he said, she's my sister. And she also said. So in his argument to God, he employs the word gam twice. 
I have an argument, I have another argument, even, more, even. Now God's response to Abimelech in verse number six. And God said to Abimelech in the dream, Gam yodati. I also know, Gam. Gam mechatoli. That's why I'm, I don't know what kind of chat. I know you're not a horrible, wicked person. That's why I'm trying to help you out. Preventing you from sinning. I'm sure you're grateful that I'm preventing you from sinning. And by the way, if you tend to continue it, I'm going to kill you. So the gam is mocking Abimelech. Now, why is this so important? The little gam. Because in this chapter, someone else says gam also. None other than the hero, which is Abraham. He's also going to say gam. Why did you do this? He has three different answers. Here's the first answer. I got another answer. Gam. I got a gam also. And we'll see that the gam extends beyond chapter 20. So this is a very important point about chapter 20. About Avimelech on one hand and Avraham on the other. This gets back to Micah's earlier point. We'll get back to it in a minute. Meanwhile, now Avimelech responds to God's warning. Early next morning, Avimelech calls all his servants. He tells them all that had happened, and the men were greatly frightened. Now one can ask the question, why does he tell them anything? Why is this important that they know this? After all, Avimelech took Sarah, and now he's gonna return Sarah. Why is it necessary? Why does the Torah tell us that he gets up early in the morning, he informs all of the servants about what happened? Why? So here, I will make the following suggestion about Avimelech. It's interesting that when God said to Avimelech, you're going to die, for the woman that you took, Avimelech's response is very interesting. Agoy gam tzadik taro, would you slay even a righteous nation? But God actually didn't talk about slaying the nation in that verse. All God said was, I'm gonna slay you. You will die because of the woman you took. There's not a word about anybody else dying. That only comes later on. And if you refuse to do it, I will slay you and all that you possess. But the initial response of Avimelech is interesting. Would you slay even a righteous nation? And it strikes me that what Avimelech is about, apart from the other things, is it's about somebody who figures out a way to avoid responsibility. And he has a partner a soulmate in the book of Genesis, who's exactly the same. He's an Abimelech character from beginning to end, even more interesting than Abimelech. Maybe someday we'll get there. And that, of course, is Lavan. It's exactly what Lavan does. He has a deal with Yaakov, marry Rachel, seven years of work, but it can't happen. He invites all the people of the town to come to a party. Then Jacob wakes up in the morning and it's Leah, not Rachel. What's going on? You cheated me. In our town, we don't do this, he says. It's not, my, it's, not my, it's not my decision. In our town, we don't do it. So there's 
tried to diffuse the responsibility. So he calls all the people and, and they're very frightened. And now, next verse, what did I do wrong? He says, well, how I sinned. You brought against me and my people a great sin. People don't even know about this, but okay. Deeds that should not be done, you have done. We notice in this verse, verse number nine, something very curious, which is the emphasis on the word to do. One, of course, could question what Avi Melch is saying and say the following. I'm not justifying Avram here, but Avram could say, well, I might have done the wrong thing. Didn't really do anything. I may have misspoken. But the only person who does, does an act of taking, is Avimelech himself. But notice Avimelech frames Avram's behavior in terms of action. And he continues with the same theme in the next verse. Moraita, Avimelech says in verse number 10, what did you see? That you did this thing. And that's what people in authority often do. There's an attempt to put the blame on somebody else, which is central to Avimelech. It's not my fault. It's, it's her fault. It's his fault. And frankly, God, it's your fault. Takes us back to the Garden of Eden. The woman that you, what did you do? Did you violate the command not to eat the fruit? The woman that you put by my side made me do it exactly the same language. Her fault, but frankly, God, your fault. The woman you put by my side. So this is the, the evasion of responsibility by blaming others. Even where the blame, even where it's tr maybe even be true, because the taking itself is problematic. So I could give many contemporary examples of evasion of responsibility by blaming others. I'm not going to go there right now, but the Chinese, the, China, the Chinese virus, let's say it's true. Let's say the Chinese sent the virus over here. Okay, so what? Now we got to deal with it, right? Chinese virus. The point is, this is Avinoah. This is a dangerous man. Because he's not Paro, actually. And God talks to him. But the danger of Avimelech is the danger of Laban, which is Paro is just a bad guy and he doesn't make a moral argument. Paro makes no moral, direct moral argument with Avimelech and Laban. They make moral arguments and it's easy to be drawn into that, to see them as some kind of moral people. And it's easy to fall into that trap. So Avimelech and Laban especially Laban, very dangerous people. You can, you can enter into that world, into that mode of thinking, and it's so dangerous. What did you do? It reminds me actually of another king, namely in Megillah and Esther, of, of um, Achashverosh, 
who gets rid of Vashti. He refuses to, Vashti refuses to come to his party. So he judges Vashti, he eliminates Vashti. He banishes her from the kingship. And then the next morning he wakes up, <clears throat> he's upset. So Haritz, the verse says in chapter two of the Megillah, one of my favorite verses, when he got up the next morning after these things, so Charet Vashti v'yet Asher Asata v'yet Asher Nigzar Oleha. He remembered Vashti. What she had done, Asata, is the active verb. V'yet Asher Nigzar Oleha, and that which had been decreed about her, had been decreed in the passive. And of course, when you read it, you laugh. You say, she didn't actually do anything. She refused to come to his party. That's what she did. That, was, that which was decreed about her was the decree that he made about her. So of course you have exactly, exactly what you have here. Why did you do this? These that should not be done, you have done. Why did you do this? He didn't actually do anything. I'm not defending it, but he didn't do. So now the question is, really Abram's on the defensive here. Why did you do such a terrible thing against me and my people, no less, my people? So now we have Abram's response. What did you see that you did this? And these verses, of course, are very stunning. Um, I said concerning this place, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and you will kill me on account of my wife. So of all the possible justifications, that's the best one, except for one question we can ask, which is, if you felt so strongly that it's a dangerous place and they will kill me on account of my wife, why do you go there in the first place? We know why he went to Egypt. There's a famine. We know there's always water in Egypt because of the Nile. That's where you go in famines, you go to Mitzrayim. So we know why he went. But we don't have a clue why he went to Grar. And if there's a, no fear of God, if in fact it's a dangerous place, don't go. There's no, there's no, there's no imperative to go to Grar. Don't go. Go elsewhere. So his answer is valid in one sense. That is the best justification. I was afraid. Afraid we'd be killed. Pikuach nefesh. I got it. But the question we can ask, we the reader ask is, okay, so don't go. Go elsewhere. We know that Avram had, for example, we know in chapter 14 that Abraham has a place where he is secure. In chapter 14, it says, These are Avram's confederates. We know he has places he can go. Just to strengthen the question, chapter 14, don't go to Gwar. Okay, fine. And now he doesn't stop. If he had stopped at this point, okay, maybe he shouldn't have gone. But now he has a second terrorist, as it were. And here we have the Vigam. Vigam, I got another answer. Gam. And the truth is, besides, answer number two, in truth, she's the sister, the daughter of my father, but not my mother. I took her as a wife. Now the question is, how do we understand that particular verse? Because after all, one can ask the obvious question if you're Abimelech, 
Okay, she's also your sister, I got it. Maybe she's also your second cousin, twice removed. What do I care? But she's your wife. And your God appeared to me in a dream and threatened to kill me and all I possessed because I took your wife. So what kind of terrorist is this? Why did you lie and say that she is my sister? It's a very good question. But presumably what Avram is saying is something else. I didn't lie to you, he says. Because if you ask me who this woman is, I told you the truth. I see her as my sister. It is true that I took her as a wife and I'm allowed to do that, he says, because she's only a sister through the father, but not the mother. The presumption being that a sister from the father only is not forbidden in marriage. That's the assumption over here. Perhaps that's why he mentions so yes, I took her as a wife, but that is secondary. If you ask me, who is this woman? She's my sister. Okay, we travel together. She's a wife. We check into the hotel. We take one room and not two. That's all true. But fundamentally, I see her as a sister. That's what Avram seems to be saying. And what is stunning about this apart from the fact that it doesn't really respond fully to Rabbi Melech's saying, but what is truly stunning is that in chapter 17, God has informed Abraham that this so-called sister, whom God sees as a wife, is going to bear them the covenantal child. So it's rather amazing to say such a thing, and, but it gives you an insight perhaps into the way Avram is thinking. Now, of course, there's another problem, which is if the first, the first answer is the best answer we could possibly give, what is the second answer adding? Why give another terrorist, as it were? When people give more than one answer to a question, sometimes there are several good answers. Sometimes it raises a question about each of the answers. The first answer is problematic. Why is he there? The second answer is problematic for two reasons, because that's not the way he's supposed to be seeing it. And even if he does see it that way, but from Avimelech's standpoint, that's irrelevant. So the second answer is the begam is also problematic. And now it gets from bad to worse because the third answer, which is the next verse, is even more problematic. From the time that God hits uoti, without means to wander aimlessly. Ever since God caused me to wander aimlessly from my father's house. That's how in chapter 20, Avram describes his, his pilgrimage and his journey. That's not the way we read it in chapter 12. He's going to the place that God will show him. Yes, he, he knows more or less where he's going. But in chapter 20, he describes it differently as wandering aimlessly, as a to'eh. Wherever, ever since this happened, this is the kindness you should show me, the grace you should show me. Every place we go. Say, he is my brother. So that's a third answer. Why do I do this? Well, we do this every place we go, he says. Don't take it personally, he says. It's not about you. It's true. People in this town are not God-fearing. I think you just might slit my throat. But the truth of the matter is, I'll tell you the truth, every place we go, 
this is what we do. That's the third answer, which perhaps is less satisfactory than the first two. This is what we do whenever we think, every place we go. So we have three answers. Notice, by the way, the word chesed that appears over here. The word chesed, kindness or grace. Later on, the Torah will speak of chesed in terms of the list of, pro of prohibited relationships, brother and sister, calls it chesed, no accident. So here we have the story. I have to stop at this point. I'll take questions. We'll continue this next week. But here's the point I want to make about Abraham in chapter 20, which to my mind is the absolute low point in his career. This is after the promise that Sarah bears the covenantal child. But my point is something else about Abraham. He and Avimelech speak the same language. I call it the gum language, the excuse-making language. And this is what's problematic. Paro's different. Paro's not, Paro makes no moral claims. Paro said, listen, well, what did you do? He doesn't get into this whole business of, of self-justification. He doesn't bother with that. Not defending Paro, but he does the raw thing he took. He gets rid of him, deports him. Avimelech is different. He prefigures Lavan and our interest is not Abimelech, who, who, as we'll see next week, he remains Abimelech. Our interest is Abraham, because when he talks like Abimelech, that's very problematic. And the truth of the matter is that after chapter 20, the trajectory of the story is that Abraham moves away from Abimelech. There's a distancing between himself and Abimelech that we'll see. But to come back to today's uh, class, the contrast between 12 and 20 is very striking. 20 is much more problematic than 12. On the other hand, and we'll see this, chapter 12 is really the first interaction we see between Abram and Sarah. And that interaction, what takes place in the land of Egypt, where she is taken in chapter 12 and retaken in chapter 20, that covers the entire relationship. And that's central to the Abram story. Because what Avram has to learn in the story and will learn is how to is, is how the family has to be built. And it certainly at this point doesn't look very promising. And it's no accident that he says about his journey at this point, I wander aimlessly. Because if you can insist after chapter 17, she really is my sister. And you are wandering aimlessly. Because understanding how the family is to be built, how the covenant is to be established, requires, as God said, your wife Sarah will bear the child. So Avram doesn't seem to grasp that point yet. He will, but not at this point. So we'll have to stop here. I'll take any comments or questions. And then next week we will continue, uh, hopefully with this, and go back to the beginning again, chapter 13 and 14. Does anybody have any comments or questions? Okay. Yes, yeah, Rabbi Silver, there were two questions on Facebook that were posted, yes. if I can ask them. Um, sure. Ozzy wrote, wrote, if he, he was referring to Avimelech, if, if Avimelech took without permission, then why does God say he is blameless? I don't I think use that God word. is actually saying that. I think God, true. I don't think God says you're blameless. I don't believe that's, but Tom Lave, you did it, you did it out of a sense of innocence, right? Because if, if he's actually blameless, God doesn't say to blameless people, what tzaddikim, do this, first of all, and if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. Because as we said, there'd be no havamina. 
He's not going to do it. If he's truly innocent, when God says, if you don't return, I'm going to kill you, suggests the possibility that he might not return. So I think Rashi here is on the right track in terms of the shot, which is you may have had, you may have not known fully, you may have be a tom lave, but uh, but clean hands you don't have. That's that's what Rashi says. So I don't think it's if you look at the bigger picture over here, yes, he didn't know that she's a married woman. In that sense, he's a tom lave. But the way God speaks and the, the the assumption God makes that he might not do it, and the threat, I'll kill you and all you possess. That's never the way God talks to innocent people or to tzaddikim. So I don't think that has to be seen in context, but I think Rashi actually provides the right context. You might have a clean heart, but clean hands you don't have. And therefore do it or else. I know you're thinking maybe you won't do it. I'm just telling you, warning you. And you know what? If he prays for you, you could live. You're better than Sadat. That's, that's my take on Abi Miller. Yes, what's the other question? The, the other question is from Nissan, and he writes on gum. Please note Shemot 6.4 and 6.5. Are the usages similar? So, Begam Hakimoti et Briti et Hamla Tetlahem et Haaret. And then the next part is Gam Ani Shamati et Naakat Bene Israel, et cetera. No, I don't think they have anything to do with each other. I think you have to see the context of it. God is saying there, I am responding to this, responding to that. That's fine. Here, the point of the Begam is. What's parallel to the two Vagams is they are excuse-making. They're excuse-making um, by people who have done something which is very problematic. And you don't need, in the case of Avram, the best response is the first one, which is, I was afraid for my life. Okay, shouldn't have gone there. But given the fact that we are here, I'm afraid for my life. But the other explanations, we do this every place we go, it's not an explanation. It's not a justification. Okay. So what the Gemara says, what if you start eating without, you forgot to make a blessing and you start eating? What should you do? Gemara says, so make a blessing now. Because you, you made a mistake once you should continue. Literally, somebody who ate garlic continues to eat garlic. Well, what does that mean? It's not an explanation. So you have to always see the context. I don't see those two as being connected. Is there any other point? And then we'll... Rabbi Siller, uh, could it be that from the point of view of the narrative, that indeed at one point uh, Aram knows uh, that he's following God, but at this point he's lost, and that's why that's why he winds up uh, going to uh, a place that we don't understand how he wound up there, and uh, he correctly characterizes himself. I'm lost now. I think that's true. I think that's. I think that is true. I don't think that in the story of Abraham, there's a movement, a direct movement from going up or going down. I think that chapter 20 is a low point. And I think on the journey, as in life in general, there are stops and starts, there's steps forward and steps backward. And the trick is, I think, in the, when you move backwards, to be learned from the mistakes, which Avram will do. I mean, we'll see how this works. It's very interesting. But yes, I'm not suggesting there's a movement straight downhill or movement uphill. I think at this point, it's exactly as you say, when he says that I, God has, that, that we are lost, at this point, he is lost. Doesn't mean he can't get back on track. We have to remember two chapters later is the Akeda. There he sees everything perfectly. He sees the place from a distance. He knows exactly where he's going. 
So something happens between chapter 20 and 22, which allows them to see properly. But yes, your point is well taken. I, I fully agree with it. And it's, it's interesting though, the, the contrast, that's the point of the sister stories. When you read these two stories and you read the second story in light of the first, the second is so problematic. There's also a third sister story with Isaac, which is also very interesting. The contrast between those, that story and the other two. Maybe someday we get there. But yes, thank you for that point. And I totally agree with that. Very important point. Rabbi? Yes. Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Silver? Yes. Um, in light of what you're saying, then taking Hagar is like a ticking time bomb that Sarah is doing. Um, if the whole situation is so um, precarious between them. It's like bringing in a third person that right. in well, a... Hugger, right. So Hagar is taken in chapter 16. And right, the Hagar is taken uh, and that did not work well. And that takes us, Hagar is, is an Egyptian slave woman and she presumably was given to Abraham as part of the payoff to, um, you know, when, 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 as part of the payoff, when, when, uh, when Sarah was, was taken by, 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 by uh, Paro, for sure. But right. the fact of the matter is that the hugger story and the tragedy, which it is, it could have worked. In other words, the, 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 we're gonna go back to that story. It's a critical story. But the fact is the story of Hagar is a story that the idea of Hagar was that Hagar will, be, will bear a child and as Sarah said explicitly, it'll be my child. Ibanemimena. Ibanemimena. Right? I'll be built up through her, playing on the word Ben as well. It's like a surrogate mother. That was the idea of it. It doesn't work, and we'll get to that chapter, and it takes us back to the story of Egypt. It doesn't work because essentially, after Hagar becomes pregnant, she looks down upon Sarah. She, she belittles Sarah. And as we'll see, Sarah blames, initially doesn't blame Hagar at all. She doesn't like Hagar. Abraham, right. She blames Abraham, and there's a good reason for it. The dog looks like, look, looks like it's, a, it's a master. And her a blame against Abraham is very simple. If you treat me like a human being, then my handmaiden would treat me like a human being. That's the pshat and the chumash. And it takes okay. us back to Mitzrayim. As we'll see, the connection between chapters 16 and 12 is very important, but we're jumping ahead. Okay, so we'll, okay. we'll, we'll get back to these points. It's a very important point. Right. Yes. Right. So, yeah. Two things. Number one, when it says, Ravi Melech says that Sarah also said she's my sister. There's no mention of that by Paro. Do we have any inkling if she also by Paro said that, yes, yes, I'm a sister? I have no idea. The Torah never, never tells us, does it? Never says, actually. He blames Avraham. Maybe Avraham considers to be the main. Avraham is the main actor in the story. He's the one who, who concocts the plan in the first place. So, and he's also the one being given gifts. So he's the, from Paro's standpoint, the women is the people that are women are simply people that you can take whatever you want. So he doesn't seem to have great respect for her, but he deals with Avraham who's, 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 who's been given all these gifts. He says effectively, which is true, I gave you all these gifts and everything. And now it turns out that I have to return them to you. He could have asked for, for, his, for, for his money back, which, which, he, which, which he does not. It's actually very interesting. There's a lot of stuff the academics wrote about this. Why doesn't he get his money back? It was a, right, he gave out all the gifts. Presumably, 
the idea of securing Sarah or in, in payment for Sarah, but he, but he doesn't return. Avram leaves with, as we leave Mitzrayim with a lot of wealth. That's interesting. What else did you want to say yet? Another point? About, just about, about El meaning Al. Yes. Ramban uses that by Memoriva, that Vidibartem, El Hasela. Ramban says El means Al, that Moshe really never had to talk to the rock. He was supposed to talk about the rock. That's a very good point. That's true. Rashi has a few other examples as well. My point about Shmuel, though, is there it's actually consistent. If you look at the first two, three chapters of Shmuel, the first four chapters, probably appears 20 times. That the El, there the L is Al. I can't explain why it would be in that case which is not true elsewhere. It, it is true, as you say, and Rashi has other examples, that sometimes it's that way. But it's not consistently that way. And in Shmuel, it's consistently that way. All I right, I, we'll stop. It's something. Yes. Just one, can I just yes. make a, one yes. point? A very large uh, view that it seems that there isn't a, just an ordinary birth in the Bible. I mean, you take- Oh, there are. You know, all their reverse, but the ones that are I mean, in Jerusalem certainly is the case. Yes, is, has a, an unusual circumstances. Yes, well, I would say that the I would say that the the, uh, the as far as the matriarchs are concerned, we'll get back to this point. As far as the matriarchs are concerned, the births outside of Leah, where God intervenes, the births are actually are actually delayed. And it's probably part and parcel of the covenantal premise as described in Breshit, which is, it only happens later. You suffer for three generations, only the fourth generation returns to the land. You give up the present for the future. So probably related to that is that the people who are covenantal have very, in, in different kinds of ways, have difficult times in the present. Best example would be Yaakov, Yaakov's life, as he says himself, the years have been few and they've been bad. That's what Jacob says. Ends up in Egypt. It's a life of suffering, but it's suffering for a purpose. The Torah clearly in terms of the covenant, the Torah values people who are willing to sacrifice and suffer for the, for the greater good. Our great hero Moshe Rabbein was called the servant of God. And frankly, look at his life. He takes a people, a difficult people, he spends his whole life serving them. There's only one request in life to enter the land, which is uh, denied him. And he's our hero because he lives a life of sacrifice. He lives for others. Uh, that's our hero. He's not a uh, so-called loser. Moshe Rabbeinu is our hero. And that's true of the people in Breshit as well. Jacob being the best example. It's a life of service and a life of suffering, which comes with it. And you don't even see the, the, the positive side of the, the other end of it. But you set it up for other people to, to allow them to enter into, in, in, into God's covenant. So I believe that the case of the uh, case of the women is probably related to that. That the, matri the default of the matriarchs is not to have children until some much later time and with great difficulty. The exception being Leah, but there God intervenes in order because Leia is suffering. Leia is suffering and Leia has to be helped. So God intervenes, but that's the exception. The default is quite the opposite. The idea of, of, of deferred benefit, the idea of giving up the present for the future, that's something which is absolutely central 
to the Book of Breshit, to the Torah in general. The idea of service, you serve for the, for the, for the greater good. That's central to our tradition. Nothing can be more central than that. That's what leadership is about. It's about giving up the present, willing to sacrifice for others. Okay. Thank I'll you. stop. Yeah, I'll stop at this point then. And uh, okay, so I hope. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.